All right, Leviticus chapter 9 is where we pick back up here in our study together. As we're looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10, as we mentioned last time, Leviticus 8 through 10 kind of is the ordination ceremony of the priesthood. Again, the tabernacle, we have it set up at this point. All the furnishings have been made. God's given instructions regarding the sacrifices, how they're to be made, sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings. And now, of course, with the priesthood, the high priest Aaron and his sons to serve as priests, we saw as we looked together last week as this sort of ordination ceremony began, the inauguration of the priesthood. It's kind of a great day of celebration and they were dressed in their garments, remember, and some different responsibilities were put upon them. And as we then left off at the end of chapter 8, the last thing that they were told to do as a part of that ordination ceremony was that they were to spend one week, remember, day and night within the precincts of the tabernacle kind of courtyard area, and they were not to depart. They weren't to go back home for the evening. They were to stay there for 24 hours a day around the clock for an entire week, really, I think, in many ways, just to get them very comfortable with being in the presence of God. And being able to have focused attention, again, detached from their family experiences, detached from what would go on among the society of the congregation of the people of Israel, everyday affairs, certainly, that are a part of life. But yet it was essential for those in the priesthood, the ministers uh, in that day to have time just alone with God and to be able to be in his presence, to seek the Lord, to have their focus there, which is critical. And again, as we've talked about, as we've been going through this, in the Old Testament, they had a priesthood. The New Testament tells us as Christians that we are a priesthood. Peter tells us that, that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. In a sense, we have a priestly ministry as New Testament believers, as Christians. So certainly as we look at the high priest, certainly these things picture and typify the life of Christ. But then as we also look at things of the priesthood, there are things to speak to us because we, in a sense, have a priestly ministry to be representatives of God to the world and also to stand in the gap for the world uh, as we're in the presence of God, interceding for people and praying for people and as we look at them spending that entire week there in God's presence it reminds me in some ways of what Paul told Timothy in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 where he told Timothy that no uh, soldier can be entangled in the affairs of this life that he may be able to please uh, his commanding officer in other words the, the civilian affairs of the day were not to encumber the the Roman soldier so that he would be freed up to be able to hear the orders of his commanding officer and be able to act upon them as needed in a sense and I think God was training the hearts the minds again remember the the ear was to be consecrated uh, of the priest to hear God's voice the hand was anointed that his hands would be about God's business his feet remember the blood and the oil were put upon on the right toe, the right thumb, the right ear. So again, that I might hear God's voice and be involved in God's works and, and go where God would lead as far as my steps. And as we come into chapter 9 now, we're just continuing on with this. That's why you notice in chapter 9, verse 1, we read, and it came to pass on the eighth day. And the idea there is, again, the eighth day after seven days, day and night, of not leaving the tabernacle precincts, we now come to a week later. They've been just alone together in the temple kind of compound area, Aaron and his sons. 
And it came to pass now on the eighth day that Moses then called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He brings together the leadership as well. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish and offer them, notice, before the Lord. So again, we're going to see some of these sacrifices begin to be made now as a part of this, as we've already talked about before, the sin offering to make atonement for one's failures and mistakes. The burnt offering was that offering of consecration whereby one's life was fully dedicated or devoted over to God. Remember the entire animal when the burnt offering, the whole thing was consumed on the altar. And it was a picture of how, Lord, I want my entire life, every part of it to just be consumed with you, fully dedicated, nothing held back. The whole animal would be consumed on the altar. None of it was eaten. And that was the idea with the burnt offering. And now some of these offerings are incorporated as a part of this worship and inauguration service for the priesthood. And verse 3 says, And the children of Israel, excuse me, to the children of Israel, you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish. Again, this picture of Christ and all of these offerings being without spot or blemish, just like Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, had no blemish or sin in his life, no defects. In verse 4, also a bull and a ram as the peace offering. That was the offering of fellowship and communion with God. Again, to sacrifice before the Lord. Again, notice that repetition there. Do this before the Lord. Verse 2, again, verse 4. Do this before the Lord. God wanted them to be conscious of the reality that everything they did was being done in the presence of God. And again, I think this is a very fitting reminder that God wanted Aaron and his sons to recognize that everything they did, God was present, God was aware of it, he was in their midst, and there should be something about the consciousness of the presence of God that always is there uh, in their, their faculties mentally and spiritually so that they would stay sensitive to the way they conducted themselves before the Lord. And I think it's good for us to realize that everything that we do Day by day, hour by hour, in the ways that we walk out our Christian life, as we serve the Lord in our vocation or in our families or in some capacity of ministry within a church or out in the world, that we remember that everything we do, that we do before the Lord. In other words, it's in front of God's eyes. It's right before the Lord as if he were the one standing and observing Almost like, you know, they have a quality control person. Well, we should, in a sense, realize that there's a level of quality control that the Lord is observing. And we should do what we do in a way where we say, Lord, are you pleased with this? You know, like the psalmist says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Because it's before his presence. Again, not just that well, my words would be acceptable. Because many times I can speak the right words, uh, but you have absolutely no idea what's going on inside my heart. And, and trust me, I'll be the first to tell you, it's very easy to put together the right words when my heart is in a completely different place or my mind is in a completely different place. So he says, no, Lord, I realize you see deeper. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And here, just again, this impression being put upon them offer these offerings sacrifice them before the lord they didn't see him with a physical eye but he was present 
He was in their midst and, and he wanted them to realize that and to remember that what they did was before the Lord, whether they saw his invisible presence or not. So sacrifice before the Lord, verse four goes on, and then a grain offering mixed with oil. And then look what he says, for today the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. So now the, the people, no doubt, probably surrounding the hills around, looking down upon the tabernacle area. The leaders are present. Aaron, his sons are all present. They're all drawing near before the Lord. In verse 6, and then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. So two times we have this mention now, again, this invisible God that we serve who delights to reveal himself and to manifest himself to humanity. I think that is nowhere more clearly seen than the very fact of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If we would ever say, does God want to be known? God hides himself. God doesn't want to reveal himself. Listen, all we need to do is look at Jesus and it is so fully evident that God wants to be known. That God actually took on human flesh, became a man, and walked among us, lived among us, spoke among us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, in essence, he's saying, look, if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at me. Jesus is the perfect representation of exactly what God is like because God's a God of revelation. And here we see God, the invisible God, say, look, don't just remember that you're sacrificing before me, but here there's this promise, as we're going to see in this chapter, where God manifests himself with power and his glory as the fire comes down to ignite the altar as the sacrificial system begins. Two times in verse 4 and then again in verse 6, it says, for today the Lord will appear to you. Again, verse 6, this is what the Lord's commanded you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. The idea, he's saying, the Lord is going to show up. The Lord's about to show up in your midst. And I think it's very interesting when you take into consideration in verse 5, look what's happening. It says, all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord, and then we read, and the Lord was going to appear to them. The congregation drew near, and the Lord was about to appear before them. That should sound familiar. What does James tell us in chapter 4? It says what? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We have that Bible promise in the New Testament that as we pursue the Lord, as we seek to make any effort to draw near to God, whether it's opening our Bible in the morning or praying in the morning or throughout the midst of our day stopping and just turning our attention to the Lord or coming to assemble to worship the Lord. God's promised us that whenever we draw near that he's never going to say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to have to take a rain check this time. I'm a little too busy you know, with Paul. So sorry, John, how about you email me? We'll try and set something up later. You know, God never does that. God is always available he longs to have our attention. He enjoys being in our presence. And he always assures us, if you make any effort to draw near to me, he says, I'll draw near to you. I'll manifest myself and reveal myself. And God was about to do this in a very powerful way 
in this passage here, the glory of the Lord was about to appear to them, as we'll see at the end of the chapter this day. God was going to show up in a mighty and a powerful way. And I'll tell you something. There's a wonderful thing, is it not? Perhaps as a Christian, you've been a part of meetings before. I know there are times in my Christian experience, whether in a meeting with other brothers and sisters in the Lord for worship or prayer, or even just personal times alone with the Lord, where you kind of just get that sense that the Lord just really showed up. Do you know what I mean by that? We say this, Christian, man, the Lord really showed up today. The Lord really revealed himself today, really manifested himself today. And there's just something really wonderful about when the Lord does that in a meeting of his people. And that's exactly what he's going to do here. And I don't think he's changed. I long for the Lord to keep doing that. The Lord, keep that up. Lord, reveal your glory, appear in our midst, show up, move among us, demonstrate your powerful presence in the many ways we see God doing throughout the Old Testament, particularly as we see this inauguration ceremony. Verse 7 goes on to say, And Moses then said to Aaron, Go to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement, notice, take notice of this, make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Now, as we come into chapter 9 here, what's happening, take notice, is there's a transitional shift. In chapter 8, remember, Moses was actually the one as he was preparing Aaron and his sons to become officially engaged in their priesthood ministry and ordained as the priests. He was the one doing the sacrifices and so forth. This is now actually, in a sense, the first sacrifice being offered by Aaron and his sons. And here now, in a sense, this is the first time as the priesthood is initiated when Aaron himself is offering his first sacrifice of many, which he will now lead and officiate. And it begins with Moses telling Aaron, Go to the altar and notice, offer your sin offering and burnt offering to make atonement for yourself first. Why? Because Aaron was a sinner. Even though he was the high priest, even though he was in a sense, uh, you know, the, the, the top ranking spiritual leader in a sense, the senior spiritual leader among the priesthood, he was still a sinner just like every other person among the congregation and he needed to realize that. He needed to keep in remembrance that reality and the people needed to realize that, that there was nothing superhuman about him that though god gave him a divine authority and a calling and an anointing that he put on his sandals and his robe just like everybody else in the nation of israel and had the same humanity and the same flesh that had to be resisted and subdued and as a result he failed at times and it was important that the people realized that that high priest was just a man that he should never be idolized as anything above that or recognized as anything more than that. So here he makes an offering, a sin offering, first to make atonement for his own sins, and then he could make atonement for the sins of the people through a sin offering. Now, here is where the beauty comes in. The high priest in the Old Testament first had to make a sacrifice for his own sins because he was a sinner as well. Then he could sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of the people. The book of Hebrews, as we told you to read in conjunction with this section of Leviticus as we're going through it, because it's a great companion, tells us that there's something far more marvelous about Jesus Christ as our high priest because unlike the human high priest, Jesus doesn't have to make atonement for his own sins because he has no sin. Listen to what Hebrews tells us. In chapter 7, let me just read a portion of it to you, Hebrews 7, 22. 
beginning there to 28. It says, By so much more Jesus has become surety of a better covenant, as there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. See, Jesus' ministry is so much better. The writer of Hebrews is saying, first of all, as he says, because every human priest only lasted for a set period of time. So as soon as you got really attached to, or maybe you got overly dependent upon the priest, hey, I need some spiritual help. Well, the priest will help me. He's my lifeline to God. Then the guy would die. Then what do you do? Oh, great. I, I, now we got a new high priest. So, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, the wonderful thing about Jesus is our great high priest is he never dies. You can stay connected, attached, dependent upon Jesus. He's never going to fail like a human being can. You can guarantee that. And he's never going to die. His priesthood is a much better priesthood because it continues forever. Because of that, verse, it goes on in Hebrews 7 to say, therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, that is, to the very end, all those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. Listen to what the writer says in Hebrews regarding Jesus. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You know, the incredible excellence of the high priestly ministry of Jesus that he was a sinless substitute and he was both the not only high priest but also the sacrifice itself which gave us that perfect atonement for our sins upon the cross as we'll be looking at even this Sunday in Romans 3 how Jesus became the propitiation the satisfactory payment once for all to atone for our sins in a one-time act of sacrifice verse 8 it says and Aaron therefore went to the altar and he follows through with the instructions now he killed the calf of the sin offering which was for himself and the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him and then he dipped his finger in the blood and applied it to the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar following the protocol in these offerings as we've studied previously already. But the fat and the kidneys and the fatty lobe of the liver of the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord had commanded. And the flesh, verse 11, and the hide he burned with fire outside of the camp. Again, symbolic of Christ who died, remember, outside of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 12, and he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons presented uh, to him the blood which he sprinkled then around the altar and they presented the burnt offering to him with its pieces and head and he burned them on the altar and washed the entrails and legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar and he brought the people's offering and took the goat which was the sin offering for the people and killed it and offered it for sin just like the first one. And then verse 16, he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. And he brought the grain offering together with a handful of burned it on the altar besides the burnt sacrifice of the morning. And he killed the bull and the ram as the sacrifices of the peace offerings, which were for the people. And Aaron and his sons presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled around the altar and the fat from the bull. And the ram, the fatty tail which covers the entrails and kidney and the fatty lobe attached to the liver. It was quite a laborious thing to be in ministry, was it not? It's quite a bloody job, wasn't it? <laughs> 
and the fat from the bull they brought and attached to the liver and they put the fat on the breasts and burned that fat then on the altar but the breasts of the right thigh Aaron waved as a wave offering before the Lord as Moses had commanded. So again, these sacrifices in the prescribed manner, again, we've, we studied these things in depth in the prior chapters, what they represent and the protocol. He's following through now as he's actually officiating for the first time his first sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings on behalf of the people, which he'll now continue to do. Verse 22 tells us, and then Aaron, notice, after offering these sacrifices, then he lifted his hand toward the people and he blessed them and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering. So after Aaron offers the sacrifices, he lifts his hands, no doubt probably sort of in a manner as you see, over the people, and it says he blessed them. Now, how did he bless them? Well, very, very likely, uh, you know, commentators believe that it was that blessing that we find that we'll get to in Numbers chapter 6. I'll read it to you, Numbers 6, verse 24 to 26, says that the Lord told Aaron, uh, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, here's the blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Again, I think God meant what he said. The Lord said, look, you pronounce this blessing upon them, pray over them in this way. And the Lord said, and I will bless them. And again, I think what a wonderful thing. I think that when we pray for God to bless someone as in a sense, a royal priesthood as ministers of the new covenant, we should believe that, that, that God hears that and God's going to honor that. And that God wants to honor that, whether we're praying God's blessing over our family and, and our children as a man in our household, as the high priest of our home, in a sense, saying, Lord, I just ask you to just bless my wife and my children and just put your hand upon them. That they might flourish spiritually, be gracious to them, you know, cause your face to shine upon them or whether we're praying for others. Here we see Aaron now pronouncing this blessing. And then verse 23 says, and Moses and Aaron then went into the tabernacle of meeting and they came out together and again blessed the people. And then look what happens, what God said would in our prior verses. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Now, how the glory of the Lord appeared? We don't know that. The idea here is a manifestation of the presence of God. In some way, God's glory, his presence his powerful representation of his being was manifested and revealed to the people as God appeared among them. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And with that, verse 24, the presence of God, it says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So, here you have the, the sacrifice is prepared, the wood is there, everything is present. And now, in a sense, here you have the, the ignition of that brazen altar for the first time. God, in a sense, the fire of God falls upon it 
And notice here that when the fire on the altar where the sacrifices would then continuously be made takes place, this is the inauguration of the official brazen altar now, the first time of its use. Notice that the fire had a divine origin. The fire did not come from some priest or two priests willing together, you know, sticks like the survival guy under there to you know, trying to, to get a fire started. There, were, there was nothing human of the origin of this fire. It was completely divine. It was eternal fire. It was divine fire that came from the very presence of God himself. God lit the fire. It was holy fire. It was fire of a divine origin, and therefore it says it completely consumed the sacrifice that was upon the altar. Now, as this fire came out from the presence of God and consumes the sacrifice, no doubt God was indicating his acceptance of the sacrifice. Even as you read in 1 Kings chapter 18, where remember the fire came when Elijah and the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah says, look, whatever God answers by fire, that's the one true God. And remember, they built their different sacrifices and then fire came from heaven when Elijah prayed and, and whoosh, just it came and it, it zapped not only the wood and the sacrifice, but all the water and everything that was around. And that was God's way of endorsing, I accept this. I'm indicating my divine approval, my complete acceptance of this sacrifice that was set before me. And of course, as we look at this divine fire that comes and consumes the sacrifice to show God's acceptance of the sacrifice, it, it no doubt pictures and, and typifies for us the sacrifice of Christ. Because ultimately, where does the eternal fire of God's wrath fall upon in the most important and eternal way, it falls upon the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And when the fire of God's wrath, all the wrath of God against sin is fired down upon Jesus Christ, that is God's way of indicating, I accept that as the sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And that is the only thing that I... Again, here, take notice, the, the fire doesn't, it doesn't harm anyone else. Everyone else is completely safe. The only thing that's consumed is the sacrifice itself. And when God poured out his fire of his wrath against sin, thankfully by the grace of God, you and I weren't the ones that were consumed. Jesus was consumed. Jesus was the one that took the fire of God's wrath upon his life because he was the only acceptable sacrifice. So again, this picture is no doubt some of this for us as the fire of God is now ignited and that fire is then responsible and by the priest to then be perpetuated as they would put wood upon the fire. But it began, please, please remember, the fire began with God's origin. It came from God. It was nothing of human origin or fleshly endeavor to bring about this fire of God. And when all the people saw this fire come from the presence of the glory of God, this must have been a pretty overwhelming experience because look what it says, verse 24, when all the people saw what happened, the glory of the Lord, and then whoom, this fire come down and just consume the altar. It says when the people saw it, they shouted, and I don't know what they shouted, Great balls of fire? No, I don't know. It, they, they shouted and they fell. They fell. I'm trying to keep it light here. It's a Wednesday night. I know it's challenging. They, they, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Now, I want you to see at the end of verse 24 what's happening. I'd call this responsive worship. I would call what you see happening a responsive worship. The presence of the Lord and the power of the Lord just moved in their midst as the Lord appeared to them and showed up in the midst of that meeting what they were doing 
And what do the people do? They respond to what God just did in their midst. They responsively, it says, fall down on their faces. And notice, their responsive worship included what? Well, I think a few things you might say it included. First of all, it included passion because it says they shouted. Now, I don't know what they shouted, but usually when you shout, that indicates a little passion, right? You know, you're having a conversation with somebody. Hey, hey, don't shout at me. What are you getting all worked up for? Why are you starting to shout now? We were just talking. Why are you shouting? Well, usually people shout when they're passionate. Or if you go to a football game, you don't say, go Eagles. Go go Eagles. You you shout. Why? Because you're passionate. When you cheer for sports, that's passion that comes out. So there's a passion here in their responsive worship. Listen, I think when we worship God responsively, there should be a passion there should be a passion in our worship, not an apathy, not an indifference, not a, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. You know, I, I, don't, I think there should be a passion. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Again, people will go to sports games and will, again, I just raise their hands and jump up and down in incredible enthusiasm to do what? To worship a sports team that the very next set of four downs, the other team comes and then they go up and then you hate the people you just worshiped and, you know, jump. But yet, well, I don't worship that lifting your hands stuff, singing loud. That's a little fanatical. You know, it's, it's getting a little excited. People, people lifting their hands. Well, it's just called passion. It's called passion, love, devotion. The people here, what are they? they fell on their faces. They fell on their faces. They shouted. I think it's not only passionate, but that also indicates humility. They fell on their faces. I would say they must have been pretty humbled in the presence of God. There's humility in that. And I think in our worship, there should be a measure of humility. I don't care what people think of me. I just, again, not that I'm saying be ridiculous or be distracting, but there's a humility of just bowing down in the presence of God. God, you are so awesome. And that's the idea too here is not only passion and humility, but they were just in awe, thirdly, of God. They were in awe of God. And I think when we worship the Lord and when we responsibly worship the Lord, those are three characterizing things. There should be a measure of humility in our hearts that, that, that's willing to say, Lord, I don't care what I sound like or I don't care if somebody thinks I'm goofy. I, or Lord, No, I just want to humble myself before you, Lord, and in a sense bow down my heart and, and just give you the passionate worship that you deserve because, Lord, I'm in awe of you. You're incredible, God. You know, something wonderful should happen. I, you know, last uh, Friday when we had the worship night, you know, there came a moment in that towards the end of our time together where you just began to sense that in the room where we just began to just, and it was part of, you could tell what was not planned. That's why it was my favorite part of the whole night because it was none of the songs that were rehearsed. People just started at the end, I was going to say started worshiping God, but that's a little too candid. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a little, little honest sometimes. But at the end, it, would just, it, would, it was nothing planned. It was just, Lord, you're awesome. And we just want to keep singing to you because, God, your presence, you're revealing yourself. And there was something about just we're experiencing God now. We're engaging God now. And, and, and I think there's just something very beautiful. This must be an incredible day in the nation of Israel, and this happened on that very moment. Well, imagine, this takes place, and after that happens, look what now happens next, right on the heels of that. The fire of God consumes and ignites the altar. The people fall down in reverence and fall on their faces. And then verse 1 of chapter 10, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, 
put incense on it and offered profane. The Hebrew term could also be translated foreign or unauthorized, profane, foreign, unauthorized fire to the Lord, which he had not, notice, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord this time and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And difficult as it was, it says, so Aaron held his peace. Now you want to talk about quite a transitional shift in quite a humbling, sobering moment. You know, a few times throughout the scripture, we see these times where the fire of God's, in a sense, displeasure and wrath goes forth. Remember when Uzzah, it tells us when the ark was being brought back up to Jerusalem and it stumbled and, and it says a man Uzzah in the days of David reached out his hand and sought to, to catch and stabilize the ark and the fire of God struck this man and, 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 and God allowed him to die on the spot. In the book of Acts in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira come in and remember their hypocrisy, they're guilty of uh, as they came into the presence of God and they're lying to the Lord and, and in a sense spreading hypocrisy among the church. Uh, God strikes them dead right on the spot. So again, we have a few of these occasions where God's strong displeasure comes forth. And I think these are occasions where it's good to stop and say, hmm, Lord, help me not to... Uh, Faux pas in that area. That's one I don't want to engage there because obviously that's something you are pretty severely uh, displeased with where God's displeasure and disciplinary judgment would come forth. So here, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, says, come in the presence of God in the midst of the people and they in their own censor offer profane, strange, or unauthorized fire before the Lord so in other words, again, apparently this was not from the altar itself, where again, that fire had a divine origin. That was God's fire. There was something eternal and divine about that fire and its origin. You know, they light their own fire or whatever. They take a coal and they come and they now offer this fire, which God had not commanded. It was unauthorized and God strikes them dead. It says the fire of God's presence comes out and strikes them dead right on the spot there. Now, what exactly is taking place here? Well, it seems, obviously, no doubt that there's something sinful taking place here, and whether the people outwardly recognized what was going on or not, we can't be certain. Maybe what they looked like from the outside, it looked like everything was just fine. Well, they're just bringing their, they got their sensor thing, they got some fire, these are the sons of Aaron, I mean, and then all of a sudden, whoom, God strikes them dead, the fire comes out and they fall dead on the spot, Obviously, there's some sin going on here. No doubt one of the things that's happening is what we could simply just say it was a sin of presumption. A sin of presumption. Because first of all, we know that the role and the task of bringing the fire as they were doing it, this was the role of the high priest. Exodus chapter 30 says that this was something that the high priest was to do. So there's a measure of presumption in this. Again, whether it's a jealousy thing, where maybe the two sons of Aaron are thinking, well, wait, what's the big deal with him? I mean, we're priests too. Why should just he get to do that? We're priests just like he is. And, and, and so if we're priests, then we should get to do what he does too. Why should only he exclusively have that role of ministry or responsibility? I mean, we're just as good as he is. We're just as spiritual as this guy. So 
they presumptuously, maybe out of a little bit of jealousy and wanting a little attention and glory, say, we can do that too. And they presumptively, in a sense, intrude upon an area of ministry and responsibility that was not theirs by God's design or calling. And God dealt with them very severely because of that. It could be that this sin of presumption, maybe it wasn't jealousy. Maybe it was just, let's say, maybe it was just enthusiasm. You think it was probably a pretty incredible thing when the glory of the Lord appeared and the fire of God came out and the womb, the altar lit up and the sacrament. And maybe just like typical humanity we all are, we get caught up in the enthusiasm of things sometimes. And maybe just their sin of presumption, maybe it wasn't jealousy. Maybe it was just they got caught up in, wow, this is awesome. And, and, and they just got caught up in all the emotionalism of the moment. So they engaged in something out of sheer emotionalism and enthusiasm but it was not led of the Spirit of God. It was of the human spirit, but it was not of God's Holy Spirit. And in a sense, in God's estimation, that's presumption. You went treading into something that my spirit was not leading you to do, and your human spirit enthusiasm caused you to engage. Not only was it a sin of presumption, it also was simply just a sin of disobedience because these were priests and they knew God's protocol. It wasn't as if these men were ignorant of this. These were Aaron's sons. God had instructed all the priesthood of these things, preparing them up to this point. So it wasn't as if they were doing this blindly. They were violating God's command with their eyes wide open. They knew God's protocol and God's prescribed way of doing things, and they were trying to push past it and compromise as if it wasn't going to matter. And listen, in the same way, it is a very wrong thing when we know God's prescribed way of approaching him through his son, Jesus Christ, where the fire of God fell upon. And we say, well, yeah, I mean, I know, I know people say that's the prescribed way, but I want to approach, my God, approach God my own way. And so we, in a sense, presumptuously and in disobedience say, well, I'm going to come to God on my own terms or do th I don't need to do things exactly that way. And, and so we kind of want to make concessions and compromises and, and, and God won't tolerate that. God won't accept that. You notice verse three, there seems to be an indication of God's displeasure where God speaks and says, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all the people, I must be glorified. You know, two things I see there that God's indicating. First of all, they were dishonoring the Lord and his ways by irreverently substituting their own ideas into this situation. Instead of coming to God on God's terms, they're irreverently saying, hey, well, well, well we, I know that's that, but we want to do it this way. We want to make a modification, do it a little bit different. And, and they're offering to God a fire that is not divine fire. It's, it's, it's not the fire of God. It's something that's drummed up by human, natural, fleshly ideas and, and you know, their own innovative. Well, we, want to, we need a little bit of a different fire. You know, this fire is not quite, we, we need something a little different, a little more interesting, a little more innovative. And so they want to offer to God their own ideas. And God says, no, look, I, divine fire. Whatever happens at the altar of God, it must be of divine origin. It must be something that is of eternal origin from God's fire, that is the only thing that can ignite and drive and be the thing that truly pushes forward the work of God and, and the worship of God when that fire is led by a divine origin and God is the one that's doing it. And there's not human fleshly efforts trying to drum up the fire of God in some way through our carnal ideas and efforts. And it seems to me that potentially these men were seeking attention and admiration for themselves that belong to the Lord. 
That seems to have been part of the problem because look at the terms again. God says, by those who come near me, I, I have these two words circled, I both times, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, God says, I must be glorified. See, perhaps Nadab and Abihu were seeking for a little bit of attention and a little bit of admiration in the midst of their ministry. They liked the idea of kind of being seen as holy. They liked the idea of kind of being the, you know, the, the attention uh, getters among the group. And, and God said, that is never going to fly for me in ministry. God says, the glory belongs to me. And if you can't serve me in a way whereby I'll be the one regarded as holy, I'll be the one that will be glorified in the midst of the people, God says, then we need to put an end to that ministry real quick. And here it seems that God was dealing rather severely with them potentially because they were trying to gain some of the glory and the attention as they're caught up in some of these things and God dealt very severely with it. And Aaron, hard as it must have been to watch his two sons die, he held his peace because he realized what God had done. Apparently, Aaron sensed in his spirit mm, that, that that was right. Uh, apparently Aaron recognized what happened, God did, and God was fully just in doing it the way that he did. Verse 4 says, Then Moses called Mishael and Elizaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, so he calls in two cousins now of the family, and he said to them, Come near and carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So kind of in the same way the men come from the funeral home and carry out the bodies. So this is kind of what's happening here. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes lest you die. And wrath come upon all the people, but let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, notice, lest you die. Here's why. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did, and this must have been hard, according to the word of Moses. So keep in mind what God is doing here. God now says to Aaron and to the other brothers, Eleazar and Ithamar of Nadab and Abihu who just died, he says, listen, I know customarily when a person died in Israel, they would bury that person the exact same day. That was customary in that culture. Then there would be a 30-day period of mourning for the loved one that was just lost. And here God says, you cannot mourn in the traditional way you must refrain, though your emotions and everything within you would love to mourn your loved one. Imagine, he just lost his sons. Eliezer and Ithamar just lost their brothers. There's, there's family, love, and connection here. And God says, do not honor the traditional ways of grieving. He says, for the anointing of the Lord is upon you. Now, that must have been extremely, extremely difficult but understand, they could not observe the normal grieving process in their place and role of ministry for the very simple reason that if they did that, they could very easily potentially cause people to, in a sense, be confused that somehow God was wrong or that what God had done was unfair. And because of their role as a representative of the Lord in this particular situation, the people just saw these two men drop dead. 
And if they would have grieved and mourned in the traditional way that a Jew would in that culture, it could have sent the wrong message to the people that somehow what God just did was wrong. What God just did was unfair, and we agree with that as well, and it would have sent a wrong message. But because of their calling, notice their first priority was to do what? It was to honor the Lord, and it was to represent him because the anointing of the Lord was upon their lives. Again, they were held to a higher level of responsibility because of their calling. Simply, such responsibility meant living to a higher standard. And this must have been extremely difficult because, again, here, can you imagine the level their emotions are running on? They've just lost. A father just lost a son. You know, two, two brothers just lost their family members. And God says, you cannot grieve publicly in the same way that you typically would. Instead, you must refrain from doing what anyone else would typically do. And, and again, as I look at this, it, it reminds me how, you know what, sometimes... These kind of things happen in our lives as we're serving the Lord. You're serving the Lord in some capacity and something very difficult and painful comes into your life. Maybe it's the unexpected death of a loved one. Maybe it's you know some tragic experience. Maybe it's some disappointment, some hardship. And here you are serving the Lord and now, bam, you're hit with a, you know, a train wreck of something painful and emotionally grieving. And sometimes... Serving the Lord means that we have to actually look past our difficult circumstance and keep faithfully serving the Lord in the very thing that he has called us to do. I guarantee you, if Aaron's anything like all of us, on that day, Aaron, there were parts of him that said, you know what, I quit. I quit. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. This is too hard. I wasn't planning on this painful. And, and I just this is just too hard to deal with to keep being faithful and doing what God's asked me to do. But see, sometimes in our lives and as we serve the Lord, sometimes serving the Lord means looking past a difficult circumstance, keeping our eyes on the bigger picture and staying where we're at and being faithful and continuing to move forward in the thing that God has us doing. And as I look at this, it's also a reminder as well that sometimes serving God means looking past even our personal feelings in a moment. Think about what's happening here. God's telling them to do something that's what? Completely contradictory to their feelings. I guarantee you their feelings were saying everything opposite of what God was having, but God was telling them in that moment, listen, there are times when you must put obedience over emotions. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with emotions, but there are times in your Christian life and experience where God is going to say, listen, you being obedient... And doing the right thing is more important than what your feelings are saying to you right now. You being obedient and doing the obedient thing is more important to be obedient and honor me than it is to go by how you feel emotionally about a particular situation. And you know what? That's hard. That's hard. But I believe there are times where God says, look, in order to honor me at times to obey me, you're going to have to trust me to give you the grace to do what's obedient, even if your feelings aren't in complete alliance with what I'm asking you to do. And here God asked Aaron and his other two sons to stay at the tabernacle of meeting because that higher calling of God was upon their lives to represent him. And then verse 8, the Lord spoke to Aaron and said to him, and interesting, this is the only time God directly speaks to Aaron. In the whole book of Leviticus, and interesting, and it's in his hardest hour. 
You know, God's so gracious. In our hardest hour, it's not Moses told Aaron. In the hardest hour, God speaks directly to Aaron because he probably knew that Aaron needed to hear something to help him in the midst of the process here. Verse 9, he said to him, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle meeting, lest you die. And it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may mis- distinguish between holy and unholy and between clean, or excuse me, unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So at this point, God gives a prohibition very clearly to Aaron and to his sons who would serve in the priestly ministry that they were not to indulge in alcohol at all. They were to completely refrain and specifically, he says, when you go near the tabernacle of meeting, he says, lest you die. It says there, verse 8, 9. That's, that's pretty severe. That's pretty strict. Now, as we look at what's being said here, keep in mind what just happened with Nadab and Abihu. The fire of God came out. They died on the spot for the way they behaved. And right afterwards, God says, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle meeting, lest you die. Could that be an indication? Can't be dogmatic, but it's possible many connect and speculate that that could be something that had to do with the way in which Nadab and Abihu just committed their error and ended up dying. That maybe potentially God brings this up because maybe those two sons had been indulging a little bit and were a little inebriated and their judgment wasn't in the right place. And as a result, they made poor decisions in pride, in presumption, with, in a sense, you know, their uh, inhibitions lowered and they made that mistake. So God says, listen, don't repeat the same mistake. And he now gives this strong prohibition for the servant of the Lord, the priest in that day, who would be used in the work of God, that they were not to indulge in alcohol. They were to refrain from it. Again, why? In the same way they had to do obedience over their emotions. What's God saying? God's saying, listen, if you're going to serve me in my capacity, that I want to, he says, look, you need to live at a higher standard. Again, can I ever make the point in the Bible that uh, it is sinful or wrong to drink if you're 21 years of age? No, absolutely not. But I think there's a great case in the scripture for saying, but if you want to let your life be useful for the Lord and you want to serve the Lord and you want to take on a higher calling and a greater responsibility to represent the Lord in some capacity, then there are some freedoms that you may have as a Christian that you choose to set aside in order to be useful for the Lord and to be able to faithfully engage in a service. There are, there are certainly higher standards for the person who serves the Lord as a minister in some capacity. And listen, if you want your life to be useful for God, you need to be willing to wrestle out. Are you willing to let go of certain freedoms? And let me just say this. I think this is one of those freedoms, even from a New Testament perspective as a Christian, that needs to be a freedom that you seriously consider letting go of. And when you read the New Testament as well, the elder is told very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 5 to be an example to the flock. Paul tells Timothy in his epistles, the deacons, the elders, says they're not to be given too much wine. And then he says, yeah, you're not to be given too wine. Again, to me, it's a very clear issue. If I'm going to let my life be useful for the Lord, I can't take the chance 
of the effects and the negative consequences such a thing could happen. That's why notice God says very clearly here, pointing out to them, there were reasons behind this. He says that you may, verse 10, distinguish between what is holy and unholy and what is clean and unclean. And that you may, verse 11, teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken. What's the point he's making? God's saying there's reasons behind why I'm giving you the instruction that I am. And, and, and let me just say this by way of personal conviction. I personally, my own conviction, think that drinking alcohol is simply just not wise. I don't think it's wise. Do you have the freedom to do it? Absolutely. Can you drink and have the liberty to do that if you're 21 years old? Absolutely. But the Bible, whenever, look at the scriptures, study the word of God. Whenever it speaks about alcohol, it always speaks of it in a negative light. You read the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 9, you see Noah drunk and the mistakes and problems that come as a result of it. He uncovers himself. He makes a fool of himself in front of his family. You read Genesis chapter 19. You find there a lot getting drunk and his sexual inhibitions are lowered and he ends up sleeping with his two daughters and impregnating them. You read the book of Proverbs chapter 23. It gives you a whole list of all the dumb, foolish, painful ridiculous things that happen to the person who is drunk. You read the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. It says it's not for kings to drink wine because their inhibitions are lower and they don't make good judgments. I, quite honestly, listen, for every drug addict in the United States of America, for every one drug addict, there are 14 alcoholics. We spend $31 billion a year addressing alcohol problems in this nation. The city in the United States of America where the highest level of alcohol consumption is, can you take a guess where it is? Washington, D.C. Does that tell you anything? <laughs> listen, you're free to choose, but, but look what he's telling the, the high priest. He says, listen, he says, it's going to impair your personal judgment. He says, you won't be able to distinguish between what's holy and unholy, clean and unclean. When you drink alcohol, it impairs your judgment. You make foolish decisions. It lowers your inhibitions, your choices, and your thinking capacity are not as they should be. And not only that, but please notice verse 11 as well. And, and we'll leave off with this, but I, I want to point this out to you as well before we close. Notice, he says, also, I don't want you to drink, Aaron, as priests, he says, that you may teach the children of Israel. What is God trying to drive home? Aaron, listen, in that role and responsibility you have as a leader, you have a level of influence upon all the children of Israel. Your calling is to be an instructor and an influencer for all the children of Israel because they're looking not only to your verbal instruction but to your personal example. And I think one of the wisest reasons to choose to say, you know what, the service and the kingdom of Christ is too important and I want my life to count and to be used by the Lord. It is too essential to have to have the liberty to indulge this freedom. And not only does it impair my judgment, secondarily, if I choose to drink or I choose not to drink, that has an influence on other people who are looking at me. You know, I'll tell you this from a personal perspective, not just as a pastor. It's a whole separate issue for me and a primary reason why I don't drink alcohol. But as a parent, my wife and I made a decision a long time ago that there would never be alcohol in our home. For one very simple reason. Because I wanted my kids to grow up in that house their whole life long. And they may think that we're 
a little peculiar and bizarre and backwards and, and everything. But I wanted my kids to grow up and realize, you know what? It seemed like our house was pretty happy, pretty healthy. Mom and dad stood together and we had fun and, and things seemed to be pretty all right. And we never needed alcohol to do any of that. In the midst of the absence of alcohol, we had a pretty good life. We laughed, we were happy, we had fun, and there was never a need for alcohol to be present. And you know what? I don't have to say that to my kids because my example indicates that to my kids.